Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, worship choir and, and Katie and Laramie. Thank you all so much for how you've led this morning and encouraged our hearts toward God's word. It's so exciting to begin our summer in the Psalms series and studying God's word is a, every summer we, we revisit these Psalms and last, last summer we ended on Psalm 48 and we'll be picking up today on Psalm 49. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the 49th Psalm. And in verse one, the psalmist says, hear this, all peoples, give ear all inhabitants of the world. And as we open God's word this morning, that is the call of God every Sunday, that all people would hear the word of the Lord, because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so to you today, believer or unbeliever in this room, this text of scripture, God has sovereignly put you here to hear it this morning. And so I pray that you would have an open heart to receive, to hear, to give ear to what God's word says, that you might respond rightly to our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry, when he was looking at this psalm and commenting on it, one of the things that he said about this psalm, which I found very interesting, was he, he said that this psalm is a sermon. And in most of the psalms, we have the penmen praying or praising, but in Psalm 49, we have him preaching. And I was like, cool, I got a psalm about preaching. That's great. So I was very excited to preach a psalm that's more didactic or more about teaching. And th this psalm here has the, poetic, the poet stepping forward as a preacher, preaching to the congregation. Uh, in, in one commentary, it said this about the psalm. It said, his theme is the transitoriness of the prosperity of the ungodly. And on the other hand, the hope of the upright which rests in God. And so for what I believe is the main idea for the original audience, to those who would receive and sing this psalm regularly, I believe this is the main idea of the text. Wisdom calls for all to understand that only God can pay the ransom required to not perish forever. Wisdom calls for all to understand that only God can pay the ransom required to not perish forever. And so for the first part of this psalm, you're gonna see the structure unfold in three parts, and I'll show that as we move forward, but in part one, it's a call for all to hear God's wisdom. Look down at the, your text with me, and it says, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. For us, this might be an indication that this is very clearly, um, and it, commentators disagree about this to some degree, but they say it could span from the time of the sons of Korah all the way through the Babylonian exile and captivity. And so most people lean toward this being from the time of the Babylonian exile, which would, as we see about the foolishness of the wealthy that are foolishly obsessed with this world, that could be the case for those who are in exile watching those who are foolishly chasing after the things of the world. So if we put ourselves as poor Israelites and trying to view this text, this might help us to understand it better in that way. But to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah, hear this, all peoples, Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Right in the beginning of our text, we see very clearly this word hear. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, which we call the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear, it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it gives a command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
It's a very common word that the Israelites would have understood. And the idea of hearing is not merely like that audible sounds hit your ear and you received those signals and the sound waves hitting your ear. No, when the psalmist and when the person in the Old Testament uses this word hear, it has the implication that you will obey or listen to what you've heard and go and do what it says. So he's not calling for you just to hear what he says and leave. He's saying, no, hear what I have to say and go do what I tell you. And who is this addressed to? Notice it is to all peoples. The psalmist here understands there's a universal application up ahead in this psalm. That this applies to all people at all times and in all places. And so he's about to unfold this for us. And, when he, and he says it again in a different way. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. He's saying the same thing, but in a different way. And then he addresses the kind of people, both low and high, rich and poor together. So while acknowledging an obvious difference between both of these groups, for the purposes of what he's unfolding, for their understanding, he is lumping them all in the same group. He's saying, really, you're all on the same playing field. Yes, there are separate groups, there are differences about you, but really, universally, this applies to you, poor man. This applies to you, rich man. This applies to you, person who's not known, and to you who's very well known. This applies to all of you. And what does he say? My mouth will speak wisdom. My mouth will speak wisdom. Now remember, he's preaching. And in preaching, he's declaring wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Well, there's three kinds of wisdom you see in the Bible. In Exodus, you see the wisdom or skillful abilities of uh, Bezalel and Aholiab in making the furnishings of the tabernacle. God says he gave them wisdom or a skill to, to make those beautiful furnishings. Many of you are able to work well with your hands, and that's wisdom, that's skill that God has given you and blessed you with to, to do things with your hands. There's another kind of wisdom. Wisdom is seen as a divine attribute of God and is personalized in Proverbs 8, saying that wisdom was with God at the creation of the world. So when God made everything, he did so in a manner of wisdom. And then the third has to do with wisdom in the ethical and spiritual sense of the word. This wisdom calls to mind living skillfully through the use of knowledge, discipline, and understanding in moral and religious matters with the ultimate end goal of honoring God in how you live your life every day. And so the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And the book of Proverbs also points us to those kind of things. You'll see a lot of wisdom sayings that help us to see how to grow and, and walk and live right with God. Alan Ross gives a helpful de definition I believe here, uh, of, of wisdom. And this is what he says. Uh, he talks about this idea, giving it gives practical feet to it. He says, the disciplined and meaningful way of life that pleases God and proves successful in the lasting community, this is wisdom. The disciplined and meaningful way of life that pleases, pleases God and proves successful and lasting in the community. So, once again, this wisdom for all, it applies to all people in all places at all times. It applies to you today. We need to know how to live our life and conduct ourselves in a way ethically and spiritually that honors God. And so they should listen to the sermon from the psalmist. We should listen to it. For the, the psalmist is saying, my mouth will speak wisdom. Hear this, listen to it. And what does he go on to say? The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. Did not Jesus say when he's talking about the things that come from our mouth really come from our heart? And so what's he saying? The things that he's about to declare in wisdom, they've first been in his heart. 
He's meditated upon God's word, upon God's law. And as the psalmist constructing this song or this sermon, he's proclaiming what God has called him to say here. So the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. And this theme of understanding is going to come up in the very last verse. So we'll see these things bookend and come right back together. Now, in an effort to explain the source of wisdom that he speaks, the psalmist teaches us that it comes from the meditation of his heart, describing it as having understanding. And oftentimes, if we have difficulty understanding something, don't we often turn it over in our minds over and over again? Like, I heard the preacher say that, but I don't quite understand it. You might talk about it with your spouse at lunch, or maybe talk about it with your kids, or maybe call a friend and be like, hey, help me understand what the preacher said, or the Sunday school teacher might have said, and you think on it. Maybe if you teach regularly, and you're trying to understand a complex topic, how you might communicate it, you're going to meditate on it. And meditation is not the emptying of the mind like these Near Eastern ideas have infiltrated our culture to think, but meditation is thinking through scripture and letting it permeate on your mind and turning it over. Not letting it leave your mind, filling your mind with the word. Now notice as it relates to understanding, we also get this word discernment. He's able to discern what is right, discern what is wrong. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said that the discernment is the difference between what is right and almost right. And as it relates to a subject like wealth, which we're going to see talking about today in the foolishly wealthy, it does take discernment to talk about these things. And for, for example, we, we really need discernment, right? We understand that. And we, we really expect others who have skills. This psalmist has a skill of wisdom he's trying to give us and explain to us. For example, you don't want to go to a heart surgeon that's, that's almost right, right? All the time, right? You don't want to go get heart surgery and he's like, yeah, sometimes I get it right. You know, you don't, that's, that's pretty risky, right? You know what someone, you want someone who knows what they're doing. And this psalmist, he's meditated upon this so much he has understanding. And this is going to be unfolded for us, which leads us to the fourth verse. What does he say here? In verse four, he says, I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. So given that this preacher has something to say of great importance, the listeners in verse four, he says this idea of inclining or leaning into. What he's saying is, I want you to listen very carefully to this revelation. I want you to listen very carefully to this wisdom. This divine revelation, as he says, is a proverb. And what is a proverb? A proverb, according to Ross, is a term that basically means a truth set in a significant, uh, sententious, and often antithetical form. Here the meaning is a wise teaching concerning the important choices of life. A wise teaching concerning the important choices of life. As this text will make clear, we will see that the wise teaching concerning wealth is to be wise and listen to God. Remember, wisdom calls for all to understand that, not, that only God can pay the ransom required to not perish and live forever. And then the rest of this verse, verse four, he says, I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. This, this idea of solve carries this idea of revealing by opening up or unlocking a, a truth contained within it, setting it forth before the hearer because it's weighty. It's weighty. It's a weighty matter of wisdom. He won't leave our understanding in the dark, but he's seeking to make it clear as this text does for us today. And he does through this, through this musical instrument the, uh, that was very common among the people of Israel, this ancient string instrument called the lyre. So the psalmist then leads us to the first part of his argument. He gave us his introduction. 
He's called us to listen. He said he, he's meditated upon this. Now listen, here it is. Here's what we need to listen to in two parts. In part two, the righteous should not fear because of the futility of the world. The righteous should not fear because of the futility of the world. Now look at the text, verse five. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. So notice it's a question. It's a question. In the first four words, why should I fear? What an excellent question. And one that is universally applied. Fear of the world and its ways is something that should not mark the true believer in Christ. At times it will, because of our own weakness. We acknowledge that we are weak and we need Christ. We need to live by the Spirit. But times of trouble will always be with us. Always. And so the psalmist explains what describes the circumstance. The circumstances causes fear to be arisen in their hearts. He says, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. The times of trouble for the righteous is explained by the fact that he is surrounded by those who trust in their wealth and they boast in the abundance of their riches. And as the wealthy trust in something so transient and boast in something so temporal, it is no surprise that they cheat those who fear God. It's no surprise that their iniquity before us is as plain as day. They value this world and their possessions rather than their fellow man made in God's image. And so these, these people are fearing these, these wicked, wealthy people. But the psalmist puts it in proper perspective. In a worldly sense, there might be a temptation to, to fear the wealthy and the powerful. Why? Well, because in the eyes of this world, and in light of only the present state, for example, maybe their Babylonian exile, they, they are seen, these rich people, as greater. And they are seen as lower. But the psalmist wants us to look beyond this world, to the true reality of the state of affairs. So instead of being tempted to fear, which is our natural inclination, our natural flesh, he asks, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you afraid? So, let's see, it's rhetorical. He's going to answer this question for us. Look at the text. He goes on to explain He says, truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. See, verse 7 to 9 puts the wealthy of the world in their proper place in light of eternity. All will face death, and their acquisition of possessions can never amount to enough to deliver their fellow man, their fellow brother, or themselves from death. Death will take them. Death is mightier than their wealth. They cannot ransom another. They cannot offer to God something and say, look, God, what, just tell me how much do I need to write in the check? I'll pay it. No. It's not possible for them to do so. And when we look at this word ransom, what does it mean? The word ransom, it means to redeem, uh, to buy, to, or in other words, to cause the freedom or release of a person from bondage or ownership often implying a delivering or rescue of a person in distress. So the word picture here is that man is captive to death. And and it's because of the fall. We get that. It's part of the curse. We're captive to death. And if someone, uh, the wealthy, just pays off death, then he can be free. That's what this foolish person is thinking. Think of when someone in, in position of power, like a criminal with a weapon, holds people captive. Right? We've maybe seen those 
uh, old movies or maybe recent movies where there's a hostage situation at the bank and then what happens? They're locked in there and then the police call in there and what do they say? There's a, well, you know, what do you want? How can we get you out of here? And he's gonna say, oh, I want a million dollars and a jet out of here, right? And there's a ransom for the life of those people in order to set them free. And notice, this is how the wealthy is described in their folly. Recognizing the reality of death, he foolishly thinks, let me buy my way out of this problem. Surely I can just pay whatever is necessary to get out of this. I've been able to use my wealth to get whatever I want. So they think they can be free this way, but no wealth can ever be enough. Wealth and power cannot purchase their freedom from death, and he foolishly boasts his wealth, boasts in this wealth, and in in death, this wealth will be completely useless to him. It cannot save. It cannot save at all. It can never suffice. He thinks he'll avoid the pit. As the text says, he wants to live on forever, but he never will, going this way. And why can't it say, the text continues to explain, look at the text, verse 10, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. So we see right away, he sees that he's in an equal state. He's the fool and he sees the wise and oh, they're, they're dying just like me. They're all going to perish. But notice, actually, what's important about this text, it says the wise die, but then it separately uses a different word for the fool and the stupid. They perish. They perish. They leave their wealth to others. And then their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. They all perish, they all leave behind whatever they've accumulated. Whatever they worked so hard for, it's all gonna be gone. The foolish wealthy see that even the wise die, and the fool's grave is going to be their home forever. So they've built up these luxurious homes for themselves, maybe in the best spot. In comparison to others, they're, they're doing great. But you know what their home's gonna be? A grave. A grave. And as we've heard the funny idiom to say, you know, you can't take a U-Haul to the grave. And you see those pictures sometimes on social media of a hearse pulling a U-Haul and you laugh about it like, haha, that's funny. But really, it doesn't matter. Because when you die, your soul leaves your body. And your body's here and it decomposes and your soul goes somewhere. But where does it go? Does it go before God in heaven waiting for the day of the resurrection of that body? Or does it go to Sheol or hell? If you are in Christ, it's in heaven. But if you are not and you are a man in your pomp or pride, you're not going to remain. You're not going to abide forever, as this text is very clear. Notice in verse 12, I want to make a, a, a point here that I think the text is making. In verse 12, look at verse 12 and then look at verse 20. Verse 12, it says, man and his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. And look at verse 20. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. When you see repetition in a text, it helps us see our structure. We see in this, this, these two stanzas, there's an emphasis here on man and his pride and his pomp. And it's helpful for us as we're trying to say, what is the original meaning of this psalm? He wants us to listen to wisdom. It's for all people. Well, the, the man in his pomp thinks he's going to redeem himself. He's going to ransom himself. But he's just like a beast. He's just going to perish. And that's the danger that the psalmist is trying to warn about. This is a psalm that's a warning. It's a sermon of warning to not be this foolish person. 
And notice, how does this foolish person describe? Beyond what we've even said about their grave being their home, notice, though they called lands by their own names. There are many you know, names of people that are still somewhat around today in our society. For instance, I grew up in Titusville, Florida. It originally was going to be called Pottersville, Florida, but Colonel Titus won a poker game, and he got to name it Titusville for winning that name. But you know what? That's all I know about Colonel Titus. I don't really know if there's anything great about him. And a lot of people in Titusville don't even know that, because I'm a history nerd. I'll, I look up a bunch of random fun stuff, right? But we see things. We see streets named after people, cities named after people, nations, empires named after people. Those people, a lot of those people are gone. They faded. They're in the grave. And if they were rich or powerful and they didn't know Christ, their name doesn't live on forever. It's here for a little while and vanishes away. And it makes us think about ourselves, does it not? What will my name mean at the end of my life? When I hit the end of my life, how will I be remembered? What does it mean for people to come from my home, like my sons? What does it mean for them to be and my daughter coming? What does it mean to come from my home? What does it mean for kids to come from your home and that name and that legacy to carry on? A name means something, but if it's a name not in Christ, it's a name that goes to the grave. It's a wealth and investment that goes to the grave and doesn't endure forever. So as we think about this, we think about man and his pomp. This idea of pomp is this idea of he sees himself as really precious. He sees himself as very worthy of honor, but he's not going to remain. Literally, this idea of not remaining in the Hebrew, literally, it means that he cannot stay the night. He won't even last the night. He thinks, I'm going to endure for a very long time. My wealth, but no, he won't. He won't. He's, he's blinded by his own pride. He is going to be just like a beast. He's going to perish. And sadly, in his own pride, with such raving reviews of his own self, he can be powerful enough or wealthy enough, he thinks, to appease God. To ransom himself. Hey, I can ransom my friend. I got so much money. I can ransom myself. But he foolishly cannot. This text reminds us that we cannot ransom ourselves from our guilt. We cannot appease man. We cannot appease God. Even the picture here of desperation, we even see it somewhat in in the life of Jacob, right? In Genesis chapter 32, Jacob thought after having offended his brother Esau for stealing the birthright, that he would send 550 animals ahead of himself to greet Esau. And and why? How, How does the text relate to us about his fear? He says, well, perhaps he will accept me. If I just can give him stuff. It's kind of naturally innate in the heart of man that if I can just give a big enough gift, if I can just do enough or offer enough, I will be good enough. I will be acceptable in God's sight. And listen here, believer and unbeliever, there's nothing we can bring to God from ourselves that is going to be enough. Jonathan Edwards once said that the only thing that we bring to salvation is, is the sin that made it necessary to be saved. That's the only thing we bring to God, our sin. God says in in the book of Isaiah, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our best is disgusting. It's disgusting. We want to appease. It's natural. But as prideful as we are, we trust so much in our abilities. As worshipers of self, we trust self to accomplish any difficulty we face. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we have an enemy. And that last enemy is death. 
And there's nothing we can do to beat him in our own strength, in our own capacity. Whatever we possess is not enough. So this psalm shows us very clearly, you cannot appease God by any human means. It is futile. It is hopeless. It is vain. And why do we fail to appease God in and of ourselves? I think it's an important theological point I want to dive into here. Why can't the wealthy and powerful appease God? Well, because our sin. Our sin is an infinite transgression against the law of God. We sinned against God, and God is eternal. He is holy. He is perfect. He's glorious. He is the maximally greatest being in all the universe. As as Anselm states, he says that guilt is not merely relative to the offense, but also to the status of the offended party. And we know scripture repeats many times, like we're going to hear in a couple weeks in Psalm 51. David in Psalm 51, he has killed Uriah. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's neglected his role as king. And what does he say? Against you only. I've sinned and against you only have I sinned. He says to God. We sin against one another. We sin against others. But ultimately all sin, even against one another, is a sin against God. And God as an eternal being, he's worthy of our worship. As Isaiah 40, 28 states, it says, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God. He's everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary and his understanding is unsearchable. So God being eternal makes it logically and I would say morally necessary that mankind is given a sentence worthy of their crime and that is eternal punishment. Eternal. You see, we practice this hierarchy of authority in our society, even in how we handle out punishments, right? It's a crime to attack another citizen, a police officer, a judge, a senator, and a president. They're all equals as it relates to our humanity before God, but because of their ranking position of authority, the offense and the punishment for that offense actually goes up for each person you're attacking, even up to the president. Each penalty, if you even go look in our statutes, it's different. It goes higher and higher as the authority gets higher and higher. So why not logically itself we see that the king of kings, the lord of lords, the god of the universe, when we sin against him, who's eternal, that we also deserve eternal punishment for our sins. We are receiving our, what we deserve, eternal damnation. Some have wondered, well, we are not infinite and our sin is finite, so why an infinite punishment? Well, for some of the reasons I've already stated, uh, we are getting what we deserve because of who we've sinned against. And, but if what I've said has been unclear, I think there's this excellent quote from Jonathan Edwards from The Justice of God in The Damnation of Sinners. He says, if God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. If you should forever be cast off by God, it would be agreeable to your treatment of Jesus Christ. We have been prideful. We have thought ourselves greater than God. We've neglected him. We've ignored him. We've set ourselves up against him in our sin and in our flesh. So we deserve that eternal punishment. But there is hope, as we'll see as we get near the end. 
Now the psalmist ending his stanza of the man in his pomp, perishing like the beast, opens the next stanza. Look down at the text of scripture, verse 13, and he explains the previous stanza, the path of the foolish man, which leads us to part three of this psalm, which I've said is a, a confident believer will not be consumed like the fool in death. A confident believer will not be consumed like the fool in death. Look at verse 13. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. So he's explaining this, this man of pomp, this is his path. They want a foolish confidence, and yet after them, people approve of their boasts. So this, this verse shows that folks who have such foolish confidence will have a host of people who approve of their own foolishness, who approve of their own means uh, that they seek to appease God. There are many others like them, and they follow them in their train. The wealthy and powerful foolishly trust themselves. They have a following. It's easy to even see that today. Now, this is, this is very evident, and, but that people are just led not by God, but by man, by their own self, by their own desires. They deviate from the truth, and this psalm goes on to now describe this person who does that, who is following the wealthy or is wealthy themselves. Look at the text. It's very powerful imagery. There's verse 14, like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. This imagery in this verse is very grave. Death itself will be their shepherd. Think that's a good shepherd? No. It's a bad shepherd. It's a bad shepherd. And that shepherd of death leads them in them being consumed in Sheol, being eroded away in the place of the dead, the abode of the dead. Those who have abundance of wealth that have provided all their earthly comforts will have absolutely nothing under this cruel and tyrannical shepherd. The text is clear. Notice it says there's no place for them to dwell. No place. They might have had palaces, but there's no place for them to dwell. All because of their sin. All because of their pride, their foolishness. But instead, if that's you today, Trusting in your own way, trusting to, you can meet your own ransom. I want to urge you to trust in the good shepherd because if not, this is the bad shepherd that will guide you to your death and be with you forever. The shepherd of death. We have the shepherd of life, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Death itself guided them from abundance to emptiness, from earthly wealth to eternal unfulfilled want in Sheol and hell. Now the text goes on to state, you might have noticed this, that the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And this verb literally means that they will have dominion over. And it it really means to trample on them as if in conquest. And in the very end of all things in the book of Revelation, it clearly shows that we as believers will reign with Christ and rule on thrones and have a role in judgment in the very end. So as as we think about that, This is what I believe this is referring to. We will rule over them. And notice the upright or the wise, it could have been the poor person in that day. Or it could have been a wealthy person. But a wealthy person who wasn't foolish and who was wise and feared the Lord. But regardless, it's all about who pays your ransom. Is it yourself or is it God? Now, the rest of verse 14 makes this assertion. It says, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. And I want to be very clear, this text is not arguing what's called annihilationism. Now, what is, what is that? 
That's the idea that you no longer continue to exist after you end up in hell, okay? Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment, so you know you are suffering forever and ever and ever. This is not my opinion. This is the word of God. See, Revelation 14, see the words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel over and over again points to eternal conscious torment. But when he says their form shall be consumed in Sheol, it's in a way saying, you know, they might have had such great form in life being wealthy, but that's going to be gone. It's going to be eroded because they foolishly trusted in it. They foolishly gave their hearts and their lives to it. And what did that do? That consumed them. It eroded them to have no place to dwell. Their outward display of wealth and grandeur is gone. Yet the psalmist, knowing the wisdom of God, proclaims how the reader can avoid this. Look at the text. Verse 15, but God, it's a a new Old Testament version of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And let that truth rest upon your soul, believer, that God will pay the way for the one who trusts him. God rescued you from captivity to the shepherd of death and the power of sin. He ransomed you at the price required for your soul, and he didn't use the methods of man to do it. He didn't need your help. He didn't demand you pay your way with your righteousness. He knows your righteousness is his filthy rags, that your righteousness is not enough to pay your way out of this predicament. You need someone who is more righteous than you and thus able to save you And that is God himself, because God alone is righteous. And he sent his son, as Philippians 2 demonstrates and talks about, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice this text when it talks about the name of Jesus. It makes you think of the foolish, wealthy person who said my name, I will name this land after me. I'll be remembered in that way. Well, that name won't last because it is not the name that is above every name. We see in this text that Jesus says that every knee will bow. Where? Where will these knees be that are bowing? In heaven? Amen. We're glad to do that, aren't we? In heaven? Yes, that's our Savior, our Lord, and our King on earth. Yes, some may not like to kneel, but some will, and some will be glad to, like us. But notice where else? And under the earth. Those who are among the dead. Those who are being led by the shepherd of death will kneel to King Jesus in hell and say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even if it's through gritted teeth and anguish, they will say Jesus is Lord. They will confess that with their mouth. Richard Dawkins, an atheist who says God is just a delusion, will acknowledge that he is God in hell. If he does not repent and trust in Christ, pray to that end for him. But other atheists like Stephen Hawking or Christopher Hitchens, they are, they will be doing that. There is no escaping this fact that your name is nothing in comparison to the King of Kings and the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. 
Knowing Christ is our ransom. Knowing we are received by faith into this grace in which we stand. We can heed the word of the psalmist in, in, the, in this verse 16. Look at the text. He says, be not afraid, which if you've been paying attention, it sounds very familiar because he asks a question. Early on in verse, in verse four when he says, or in verse five, when he asks that question, why are you afraid? So he says, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. In the closing of this psalm, it in many ways reflects what has already been stated, yet in greater detail. For example, verse 16, like I said, looks back at verse 5, the question that's posed. There is a temptation to fear those who are greedy and powerful and wealthy when you might feel powerless against them, when especially they might work to cheat you or do things against you, when they're free to do as they please. But we, we must be reminded that men in, in, in our society, the wealthiest men, just to name them, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, all those guys and more, they won't carry anything away with them. We shouldn't envy them. We shouldn't fear other ones that might have evil intent. We should pray that they would humble themselves before the mighty God of the universe. Because the glory of the foolish, rich, they might have some enjoyments on earth, but they will continue to their death without those things. They will continue to their death and to the shepherd of death and be without. So we righteous should not be afraid when we look at the big picture that's why Jesus says, don't be anxious for today. Or for, for, yeah, don't be anxious for, for today. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Today has enough troubles of its own. And so when we think about that, we should, we should trust in the Lord for today because if we seek his kingdom, we're gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be fine. It doesn't mean sufferings and trials are not gonna come our way, but in the end, we win. In the end, we are ransomed. We are victorious. Now, you look at verse 18, which is very interesting. He says, for though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. Yeah, we'd say financially and prosperously, he's blessed. He's, he's in a happy state because of the wealth that he has. And then he says, though you get praise when you do well for yourself. And this parenthetical statement um, is, is a word of acknowledgement. Set, I think that success can be noticed and, and pointed out. That it's even appropriate to do so, we might say, from the world's perspective. But verse 19 states that if... If you're not ransomed by God, look, verse 19, his soul will go to the generations of his fathers who will never again see light. This text is not an anti-wealth text and now everyone turning your money. It's about how you handle your wealth in light of who God is. It's about not being prideful or boastful in the possessions you have, but rather looking to God who gives you all things and responding in gratitude and, and, and recognizing with wisdom that what you have is not enough. In verse 20, you'll notice the closing of the stanza like I pointed out in verse 12. It's very similar, but there's a slight difference. Maybe you notice that. It adds this phrase, yet without understanding. And this is reiterating the theme from the introduction. And remember in verse four, I will, or verse three, my mouth shall speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. And so in presenting this to all peoples, the psalmist is giving an opportunity, we might say, to those foolish wealthy. But 
But the problem is, in their pomp, they can't hear this. In their pride, they won't even receive this. Man in his pomp is without understanding, and he's saying, look, I have understanding. Here, listen, all peoples. One of the saddest things to, to see is see someone harden their heart against God and his word. Maybe, maybe that's you today, and I, today if you hear God's voice from his word, I plead with you to repent, that you might enter into eternal rest with Christ, and not into Sheol, to hell, to be led by the shepherd of death. This past week, I got to partake in middle school mania. It was a lot of fun with these kids, and got to go through the gospel, went through every day something different, God, man, Christ's response, and the very last day I talked about what it means to grow in our faith, and I remember at one point, one of, the, one of the kids who doesn't attend our church was laughing in the back. You know, something I said must have been very funny. Um, and um, it wasn't. But he, um, he's sitting there laughing with his friend. And I, the, what he was laughing at, I, could, I knew exactly what he was laughing at. I was going through the works of the flesh list in um, Galatians chapter 5. And he was laughing at one of the words being used. Maybe sexual morality or something. He just thought it was funny. I don't know. But he laughed right after I said that. And so I read the rest of the list and I stared at him. And I got to the last phrase reading that. It says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I was worried for that kid's soul. He thinks this, this truth, are, these, these states of the flesh are just funny? In his pride? Maybe you don't take the things of God seriously. Maybe you've grown up in church your whole life and just kind of going, going through the motions. Maybe you're here because your parents made you if you're young. But if you're old, you just kind of do this because it's tradition and you're not saved, you're not regenerated in your heart, and you're pompous in your pride, and you don't heed God's word. We might even say, because of your pride, it's in a way thinking you're greater than God, so it's a way of mocking God and saying you don't need him. If that's you today, I plead with you, don't harden your heart. Repent and trust in Christ. Seek to listen to the wisdom the psalmist speaks. Seek to understand that you can't ransom yourself, you need to be ransomed by Christ. Remember what Christ said? Remember what Christ said? He said that he gives his life as a ransom for many. He gives his life as a ransom for many. Alan Ross, in, in ending this psalm, I, I just really love this quote that he said, but he, he, when he closes this psalm, the man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. He says, this summary statement does not need to reiterate the points of their death, that were made in the psalm because they were implied. These rich fools who do not trust God, what do they do? They perish like cattle. They're laid to the grave with nothing and descend to the unseen world of the spirits and there they are like a flock of sheep with death for their shepherd. Their beauty and their glory is gone. And so in reflection on this text, a word to the wealthy, wealth is not evil. Wealth is not evil, the Bible never says that. 1 Timothy chapter 6 starts in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. For, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have even wandered away from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then he continues on in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to be the man of pompous pride. Charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, and thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for when? The future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Of course, wealth is not bad. Many of us, or rather most of us, are very wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. But but even as we think about that, it's vital for us to remember we are to be good stewards, as this text made clear. We're to be good stewards. We're to show generosity and, and to be grateful for what we have. And, and Woodlawn, your reputation precedes you. You are a very generous church, a very giving church, and you model that very well. You're exceedingly kind and gracious. And we are better for it for being people who are ready to share, who labor generously and steward our wealth for his glory, for his kingdom. And what you're doing is you are giving yourself a good foundation for the future. Thank you for the ways in which you give so generously. But another point of reflection outside of a right view of wealth, really a word of judgment on those who crave glory, on those who crave worldly esteem. It reminds me of Revelation chapter 18, and it talks about Babylon the Great. And Babylon the Great, their sins are heaped as high as heaven. A clear reference back to the Tower of Babel. And it's amazing, right? When you think about the Tower of Babel, it's, it was called that place because that's the place where God confused the languages to force them to fulfill the cultural mandate, to fill the earth. And what happens in this scene? Well, well continuing on throughout history with the idea of Babel, Babylon comes about. In this nation of Babylon, in the book of Revelation, Babylon is referred to in this way of being these, this kingdom set itself against the king of kings and the lord of lords. And it calls himself Babylon the Great. It thinks it's so great. But ultimately, if you read Revelation 18 and Revelation 19, you see that Babylon the Great is fallen, fallen as it proclaims. In the end, it all falls. It all comes crashing down. That name might have lasted for a long time. But in the end, the king of kings and the lord of lords who rides down from heaven has the victory. The, the, the destruction swiftly comes to those who live for their own glory, as is clear in Scripture. Jesus, also in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 12, he says this, and I really want you to hear this. Uh, Jesus' words on the wealthy here are very helpful for us. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, my brother, I tell my brother, sorry, he, gives a, he commands Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods 
laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And Jesus ends this parable, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Are you rich toward God? Are you walking rightly with God? What is your treasure? Jesus also says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, that your heart will be also. Do you treasure Christ? To treasure Christ is to, to worship him and to serve him and to delight in him. Is that you today? When I'm speaking to you and the word of God is speaking to you, is that true of you today? That you treasure Christ? In conclusion, how I think this text is to be applied to us today. We must worship God in his infinite wisdom because he in his infinite wisdom provided Christ as our ransom. And we should not let, sorry, and not letting us because he provided Christ as our ransom and not letting us perish in our pompous pride. Christ delivered us from our pompous pride. Christ delivers us from our sin. So let me ask you, are you prepared to praise God in eternity or perish with your pitiful man-centered pomp? An application for you, believer. Isaiah says in Isaiah 35.10, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return, and it shall come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy. It shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall all flee away. Because we've been ransomed, we can praise God. Our response to this text is to hear and to receive this wisdom and have understanding and to not fear the wealthy, the foolish wealthy in our world that We've, we fear might have greater power over us because God has overcome the world in Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will destroy Babylon the great. The pompous pride of man will come to a ruin and we will worship the king. We will feast in his house, which remains forever. We won't go to the grave. We will know him and see him in his glory. We will not come to ruin. We will be preserved, enjoying the everlasting joy offered by being in right relationship with Christ. That's our response to this text, believer. But for the unbeliever, are you engulfed in the rat race? Are you scurrying along to build up your name and your possessions and your house? You don't give thought. You're trying to make your name great. Are you empty, depressed, lonely, anxious, or fearful? Or are you almost sinfully glad in your state of affairs that, hey, life is great. I have everything I could ever want or need, but... If someone were examine your life, we don't see Christ at all in there. And you're deceived. Because it's, it's never enough. It's never enough. You see, the God of this universe, unbeliever, he's the only true God of, in the, uh, the, the, of the Bible. He's the only true God in the universe. He's the God of the Bible. It is vain and foolish for you to chase after the world's wealth and to live for your glory. You will perish if you continue in this way, unbeliever. And maybe it is the case that today the Spirit of God is effectively working through his word. The Bible, as we know from Hebrews 4.12, it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. Have you listened to God's word today? Have you heeded the command in the beginning, hear this, all peoples? Have you listened 
Do you have understanding? Because the truth is, if you don't get yourself right before God by coming to Christ, you will perish in the way. If you were to die today, you will perish in your pompous pride. So friend, do not tarry any longer. Christ invites you to come, for he knows you cannot bear the burden of your sin. He knows you, and he bore it on the cross for you. He rose again that you might be forgiven and have eternal life. So I want to plead with you to hear that gospel message, that good news for your bad news, that Christ is exactly who you need, that you are not here by mistake, but Christ and his sovereign grace has allowed you this morning to hear this word. Trust in Christ today. That will be the wisest way for you to respond to this text, to have faith in Christ. In closing, I would like to close with this verse of scripture from Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely, for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. I hope today we see our life rightly in light of Scripture, and we respond to his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time to worship you. And we pray that we will all hear this text and respond to the wisdom of the psalmist. God, help help us who are tempted to covet, to be grateful for what we have, but also to not give in to that vain pride and to be led astray, to not follow you, to not, I pray that we wouldn't fear. There's so much we could be afraid about in our culture today because the news is constantly pushing fear. But your word many times says to do not fear and to remember and to take heart that you have overcome the world. So help us to rest in your sovereignty over our lives, that you are meticulously involved in every atom of creation, including our own lives. Today, if you hear his voice and you're an unbeliever and your heart is hardened, this is a time now where you can respond. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of response and I'll be down front to receive you if you would like to come and trust in Christ, but you don't have to come down and see me. There are many within this church who love Jesus and would love to show you and to walk you through the scriptures to show you how you can be in right relationship with God that you could be ransomed, redeemed, bought out of the marketplace of sin and given a new name and made a son or daughter of God. That is God's desire for you today, unbeliever. So you can respond by coming forward to talk to me or to your neighbor. Maybe today you're burdened with sins, believer. Maybe you're burdened with trials and troubles. We'll be glad to pray with you to encourage you, to build you up. Or maybe today you're wanting to seek membership here at this church. We'd be glad to, to talk with you if you want to come down as well and to introduce you before the church that they might get to know you and you might seek to find a church home that you might one day join and grow in grace in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ with us. We pray right now, Lord, that we would respond rightly to your word, that your word would do its work in our hearts. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.